Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for your, your mercy and your grace toward us. Lord, thank you for how you blessed us this morning uh, in corporate worship uh, from 1 Corinthians. Lord, uh, it was really, like Paul says, it was in one true sense against our will that we that we receive the stewardship that we have, that we've been entrusted with the gospel. Uh, it was against our will. You changed our wills. And so we thank you. Thank you, God, for showing us mercy, for pitying us in our helpless, miserable, uh, damnable condition. Thank you for drawing us to to behold your beauty, to love you, to trust you. Um, And Lord, uh, being entrusted with the gospel isn't just something for us to enjoy and benefit from personally, but it's a message to be proclaimed. Uh, With the gospel comes that obligation to to proclaim the gospel and to, to serve you. So Lord, make us faithful, make us joyful servants by enabling us to to see how blessed we are and uh, do that work in us even now as we look at this passage in first peter open it up to us and we behold your your glory and delight in you and see how you delight in us and maybe be motivated to serve you and i pray this in jesus name amen all right, so we're looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, uh, instruction given primarily, or more, most directly, to wives. Um, boy, even, even people, uh, when they're free to make up their own minds and form their own decisions, they most of, most of the time quickly find a familiar framework in which they can fit in. Uh, They fit into this pattern. They behave in a predictable way. And it makes you wonder if we're actually that free at all. Uh, Think about people looking for a seat on a Sunday morning. Uh, If it's a normal auditorium, not like this L-shaped, strange auditorium that we have, a normal auditorium, you come in and almost everyone goes down the center aisle, goes down about halfway, and they pick one side or the other, and it's usually a certain side, right? The same one, and... and, uh, It's only when those seats are occupied that people will gravitate elsewhere. Uh, We we could talk about um, the psychology that drives supermarket shopping. People have studied what colors uh, sell best and at which height on the shelves. Uh, And and no matter what the product is, they know how to sell. Um, Think about teenagers and teenagers who are free to wear whatever they want. Uh, but usually they will instinctively go for the same things, the same jeans, the same hat, shoes, jewelry, whatever, uh, so that when you see a bunch of them standing together, they look like, sometimes they look like they're almost in uniform. And in a sense, they are. Uh, people, uh, when they're free to do whatever they want, almost would appear as though they're not so free at all. They're kind of locked in. If you think about that, about the way that we are, the way that our world is, what Peter says in his letter 
to these Christians is striking because he's really calling them to live out of step with everyone around him to do what is so unnatural. And it's awesome. And it's beautiful behavior that he's calling these Christians to for the sake of the reputation of Jesus Christ. He's displaying, uh, God is displaying his glory in the, uh, <laughs> the distinctive behavior, distinctively beautiful behavior of his people. And uh, that's what's behind this, uh, this text. Peter addresses the role of a woman, more specifically the role of the wife, uh, and uh, calls them to do what's unnatural. And, and he's already, he said already that we are free. He's reminded the, the, the Christians of that fact. You remember that? Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 16, right? So we're backing up a little bit. Uh, and he's basically been setting the tone, setting the context, laying a foundation in these prior verses. Chapter 2, verse 16, he says, live as people who are free. You're not locked in to what everyone else is doing, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. You've been free to live a different kind of life in service to God to show His greatness, okay? So, so keep that in mind when you read these instructions to wives in particular this morning. Uh, he's addressing the wives as sojourners and exiles, right? He's, always, he's already established that fact in chapter 2, verse 11, that we are sojourners and exiles. This is not our permanent home. We are just passing through. Uh, so these wives, wives, you are, you are from a different place. You're here for a time. Um, and as in so many other ways in your role as a wife, you'll find yourself out of sync with your culture uh, and with uh, your neighbors and everyone around you. Uh, and that's because your perspective is dominated by your heavenly Father. You're a child of God. He's caused you to be born again to a living hope, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Uh, your, your perspective is dominated by your, your new king. You're part of his kingdom. Chapter 3, verse 1. Let's read it together. Uh, follow along as I read. This is inspired word of the living God to us today. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet, quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Uh, he starts out the word likewise. We did talk about it last time, and I've been thinking a lot more about that word and its usage here. And, uh, and I, I want to tweak a little bit what I said last time. Uh, I don't think it's simply a matter, uh, a way of saying, here's another example of submission. I think it is, in the context, another example of submission, right, as he goes through these, right? Obey uh, human government, uh, servants obey your masters, and now wives uh, submit to your husbands. Uh, yes, it is another example of submission, but the word likewise, I think it has a more specific and, and nuanced uh, reference uh, in, when he uses it there in verse 1 of chapter 3. Um, I think likewise is a way of saying with all respect or with fear. And he's repeating that thought of verse 18. 
So in verse 17, he gave some instructions or some exhortations that, that put all of, all of his instructions in perspective, right? Look at verse 17, chapter 2, verse 17. He says, honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor, right? Then verse 18, servants be subject to your masters with all respect. And you remember that is with all fear. And it's translated that way in a lot of other translations. And he's not talking about a fear of the masters, the earthly masters. No way. Couldn't do that. It would contradict what he said in verse 17. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Right? So fear is reserved for God. Right? We don't, we don't fear earthly masters. That's not why they were to obey the earthly masters, because they feared what would happen to them. Uh, no, they feared God. Um, and so then I think in chapter 3 and verse 1, when he says likewise, or in the same way, it's translated that way in uh, the, I know the New American Standard, uh, I think maybe the LSB as well, in the same way. I think that means with all fear. That's the way we do it. That's the way that we uh, show that submission. Uh, in the same way or with all fear, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Uh, so, uh, and again, it's not saying with all fear of your husband. No, actually, he contradicts that later on in verse 6, and we'll get to it. Not fearing anything that's frightening, he says. Uh, no, with all fear of God, because he's expounding on what those instructions in verse 17. Um, and then when you get down to verse 7, he's going to use that word likewise again. And he's going to talk to husbands. And he's not telling the husbands to submit to their wives. He's calling husbands to honor. And look at verse 17 again. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. There's a place for honor, right? So he's, he's uh, looking back at verse 17 and saying we, need to, we all need to live in fear of God and uh, husbands especially need to honor their wives, uh, but wives would submit to their husbands. Um, so, but this is another example of submission, right? Because you just you follow the order of things and Chapter 2, right, uh, government, uh, the emperor, and then uh, servants to their masters, and then wives to their husbands. And so verse 13 applies when he says it's for the Lord's sake, right? All of these things are for the Lord's sake. In other words, the wives, when they submit to their husbands, they are to do it as worship, as worship to the Lord. Um, and you remember uh, the wider context, the whole book, it's about standing firm in God's undeserved favor, identifying as undeserved favor and uh, enjoying it and living in light of that, living that out. So overall, the point of the Christian life is to display the glory of the grace of God. That's the reason why we were saved. That's why we're sanctified. That's, that's what we do with everything in our lives. We do it all to display the, the glorious nature of God's undeserved favor to sinners, even us who are in Christ. Uh, well, there's a way in which women... Wives, in particular, are to do that within marriage. How can wives, in particular, display the glory of God's undeserved favor in marriage? How can they proclaim the excellencies of the Lord? Well, Peter tells them what to aim at. Three different aims of a wife who desires to display the glory of God's grace. And we saw the first one last time. Peter says, aim at this. Number one, submit to your husband with God-fearing and God-glorifying conduct. Take aim at this. If you want to display the glory of of God's grace, the impressiveness of his undeserved favor, then aim at this. Strive to submit to your husband with God-fearing and God-glorifying 
conduct. So let's read verses 1 and 2. Uh, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see a respectful and pure conduct. Uh, So at the heart of these two verses is that command to submit uh, or be subject to. That's how it's translated in the ESV. Uh, And it's the command for the wife to submit to her own husband, not to all men in in general, but to her husband in particular. Um, And it's to place, she's to place herself under the authority of her husband, recognizing that God has called him to be the leader. He's made him responsible for the leadership in the home, and she embraces God's plan and so puts herself underneath his authority and seeks to support what God has called him to do in being the leader of the home. Uh, And uh, so we clarified a few things that submission does not mean last time. I think this is important. Uh, I'm going to repeat these. Uh, what What does submission not mean that we can tell from this text, from this passage? It doesn't mean that husbands and wives are not equal, right? When we say that the wife is to submit to her husband, it doesn't mean that they're not equals. Peter refers to them as fellow heirs of the grace of life. Fellow heirs of the grace of life in chapter 3 and verse 7. And we'll get there and talk about that more. Um, it doesn't mean she must put her husband's will before the Lord's. You know, because all of this submission is, he said, for the Lord's sake. And it's to be done with all fear or in the fear of the Lord. And if we fear him and revere him and respect him and want to honor him, well, then of course we're not going to. A wife isn't going to uh, uh, disobey the Lord in order, just because her husband wants her to. No, the, the submission, biblical submission, uh, would not include disobeying God, right? Because it has to be for the Lord's sake. So um, then it also we said it doesn't mean that she has to agree with her husband. That's not what it means for the, for the wife to submit to her husband. She doesn't have to agree with her husband about everything. Peter acknowledges that many wives have unbelieving husbands. I think that's what he's talking about in this text. Obviously, they won't always agree, but she must still submit to him. And then lastly, we said it doesn't mean that she'll never try to change her husband. That's not what submission looks like. She, a godly wife, will oftentimes try to change her husband, but in a particular way, right? Um, You know, the goal here, as Peter is uh, speaking to them, is for her to try to win her husband. Uh, So there's a change that she wants to see in her husband. So... If a Christian wife is, uh, is, has a husband that is sinning in some way, well, if he sins, then she should follow Matthew 18, right? You go and, and uh, you try to, she would try to win her brother. Uh, uh, and if, if she thinks he's, for example, not providing biblical leadership, maybe he's lazy or maybe he's fearful and so he's not leading as he should, well, she should say something to him about what God uh, calls him to. And uh, if he's not willing to receive that, then she should go to her elders in the church and ask for help, ask for wisdom, and, and they would go and talk to him if he's persisting in this pattern of sin, and they would uh, all together try to win him to obedience to the Lord. Um, if she thinks he's domineering or harsh, well, that would be sin. And uh, if she's seeking to embrace her role as a godly wife, she can't pretend that doesn't exist. She, she has to care about him and his holiness. And, and if he's domineering and harsh, then 
then he's uh, living contrary to the will of his Lord. And so uh, out of respect for the Lord, out of fear of the Lord, she needs to address that in his life uh, humbly, prayerfully, but she has that responsibility uh, to help her brother because he's not just her husband, but a brother. Um, and then, uh, you know, if he doesn't listen again, then you follow on to the next step of Matthew 18. Um, Submission for the Lord's sake never follows a husband into sin. Never. If it's submission for the Lord's sake, it has to be submission that honors the Lord. Um, Submission for the Lord's sake never ignores the responsibilities of Matthew 18 and Galatians 6. Uh, Galatians 6, uh, if anyone is caught in a trespass, you who are spiritual, be restoring the person in the spirit of meekness. Uh, that's the responsibility we have to have to help someone who's caught in a sin. Uh, and uh, so she can't, in her submission to her husband, set aside her Lord's, Jesus Christ the Lord's, commands in Matthew 18 and in Galatians 6. She can't set those aside. Because if she sets those aside, whatever submission is, it's not for the Lord's sake. Um, so biblical submission, and I, I was referencing uh, a definition that I've, I got from John Piper. Biblical submission is the disposition to follow a husband's authority uh, and an inclination to yield to his leadership. And, and he uses those words disposition and, and inclination. We feel like, wow, that's kind of peculiar. Why is it just, he just, he, he, we, we've, it feels like he ought to say, she just does what he wants. But see, biblical submission you have to wear it as a disposition because he's a sinner and she can't be a party to his sin. So she's got to long to, to, to follow what he says, but there's times when she's, she'll have to say, I can't do that because my allegiance is to Jesus Christ above all. So I can't be a party to that, right? But, but she doesn't want to contradict. She doesn't want to say, I'm not going to do that. Her disposition is to do it because she recognizes God's plan and the authority that he's delegated to her husband. And so, that's, and so she wants him to repent because she wants to follow him. And, and if she is talking to him, maybe like uh, giving admonishment, she should remind him of that. I want to follow your leadership, but I can only do it if it's in keeping with what Jesus Christ says. And that's why I say these things to you. Uh, because I want to uh, bring myself underneath your leadership, right? So there's a humble way of saying it that, that exalts Jesus Christ. So uh, biblical submission is, is God's calling on a wife to, to honor and affirm her husband's God-ordained authority and leadership. And, uh, it's, and it involves her help carrying it through according to her ability. She's helping him to be a leader. Um, so, uh, let, let me list some specific ways wives would not be submissive to their husbands, right? So, kind of flipping it over, right? We clarified a few things that submission doesn't mean. <laughs> well, it's, now we're going to uh, wrap our brain into a pretzel even more. Uh, specific ways wives, wives would not be submissive to their husbands. So, some practical examples uh, that she can look for. And if, if she's doing these things, she knows, okay, I'm not. I'm not doing what Peter says I need to do. Uh, so number one, she directly defies his wishes. 
And, and not because he's forbidding obedience to the Lord or because he's commanding disobedience to the Lord, but for some other reason. She directly defies his wishes. That's not being submissive to her husband. Uh, a second uh, way, uh, she makes important decisions without consulting him. It's important decisions, but God has called him to be the head of the home, the leader, and he's responsible for those decisions. And so if she recognizes that, she's not going to make important decisions without consulting him. Third, uh, she doesn't pay attention to what he says. Not paying attention to what he says would be not being submissive. Um, so sometimes we think of submission as just directly contradicting or defying uh, what he might say. But if she's not paying attention, right, that obviously may be a little uh, a roundabout way of uh, <laughs> not having to do those things. I don't, I don't have to even reject what he says if I just don't hear what he says, right? Well, okay, she doesn't pay attention to what he says. That is not being, that's not embracing Peter's command to be submissive. Fourth, uh, she argues or sulks or, or gives him the cold shoulder when she doesn't get her own way. Uh, she's, because uh, this uh, idea of being submissive is voluntarily in the fear of God, bringing yourself under his authority. And so you are uh, encouraging his leadership in doing this because you love the Lord for the Lord's sake. And so the heart is essential in that. Fifth uh, example, she, she manipulates him to get her own way. She may manipulate by deceit, uh, through tears, uh, begging or nagging, uh, complaining, uh, getting angry or intimidating in some other way, maybe uh, debating at length about something. Um, in a way of really trying to get him to do what she wants rather than being voluntarily submitting herself. Uh, sixth, she worries about the decisions he makes and takes matters into her own hands. Uh, so that's why that, that likewise is important with all fear. With all fear. It's, it comes with a great respect for the Lord, a great confidence in him, uh, and, that, and that empowers her. Yeah. I think all six of those things are very good. And I think Peter wraps it up in the second verse with one word, respect. Yeah. All of those show a lack of respect for the husband when the wife is called to do all things with respect and a pure heart. Yeah, although I think the respect is not for her husband there. I think that's for the Lord. It's that same word in all fear. I agree. Yeah. But it, it translates down to, and if you're respecting the Lord, Respect comes down to your husband, and respect is important to the, right. to the husband. Right, yeah. So submission for the wife is yielding to uh, her husband in recognition of his authority that God has given him and the disposition to yield to his leadership, and it's voluntary. Uh, the husband is not supposed to uh, enforce this. He's not to... Uh, uh, to uh, how do you... Demand it. Yeah, he, he should encourage her with Scripture, right? But, yeah, it has to be voluntary because it has to be her act of worship. And so his uh, encouragements to do that have to be in recognition of that. She has to desire obedience to the Lord. So, again, verse 1. Look at verse 1 again. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives... When they see your respectful and pure conduct. Uh, so wives are to submit to their own husbands, and their behavior should be, NAS says, chaste and respectful. ESV says respectful and pure. Uh, 
And Peter says that kind of behavior will have quite an effect for those wives uh, who have husbands that are disobedient to the word. He says they may be one without a word. Um, what does Peter mean when he says when he speaks of those husbands who do not obey the word? Uh, I think he's speaking of unsaved men, unbelieving husbands. Uh, and I think that way because of how he uses this terminology, Peter does, in this letter. Chapter 4 and verse 17, uh, he says, It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So he's got two different categories, believers, part of the household of God, and unbelievers. And the unbelievers are referred to as those who do not obey the gospel of God. So he's thinking of the gospel as uh, coming as a message with authority from the king, calling us to respond in a particular way. And so when the gospel is not believed, there's disobedience. Um, chapter 2, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 7 uh, says, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, what about them? The stone that the builders re- uh, rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense... They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So those who do not believe, Peter says, are those that disobey the word. And so I think Peter is talking about husbands who reject the gospel. They reject Christ. They don't believe. Um, And Peter says husbands like this may be won without a word by the behavior or conduct of their wives. Uh, now, one without a word, I don't know what you think about that. Who can you win without a word? Can, we, can you win someone? Can someone be saved without hearing the gospel? Certainly not, right? So he, Paul, Peter clarified this already in this letter. First uh, Peter chapter 1, verse 23, he says, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. And what is that imperishable seed? It's through the living and abiding Word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. And this Word is the good news that was preached to you. So there it is. Uh, When a person is saved, he's saved because God causes him to be born again. How does he give that new life? He gives it by means of the imperishable seed, uh, that seed that gives life, and he plants it deep into a man's heart. And uh, what is that seed? It's the gospel. It's the Word of God. So there's no salvation apart from hearing and embracing the Word of God. That's what gives us life. Um, So what does without a word mean then? They're saved without a word. Well, I think it means to be saved without nagging, without preaching at them. Wives should refrain from badgering their husbands uh, about their need for conversion. And, and one, uh, in the sense of willing to listen, glad to listen uh, to the gospel. Does that make sense? So Peter says husbands like this may be one without a word by the behavior or conduct of their lives. This goes back to one of Peter's favorite themes. He loves talking about behavior and conduct and and uh, 
I say behavior and conduct because the NAS translates it as behavior pretty consistently, and the ESV translates it as conduct. I think the LSB does conduct, right? Did you read that? You don't know? It does. Yeah, so it follows the ESV there. So uh, this, is, this is powerful behavior, powerful behavior, uh, beautiful behavior. Uh, so this, this idea of behavior or conduct, it comes in verse, chapter 1, verse 15. Uh, As he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So for a wife to be holy, like the holy one who called her, she must be, Peter's saying, submissive to her husband. This is what it means for the wife to be holy. Uh, she needs to be submissive to her husband. And she can do this. She has been redeemed from feudal behavior or from feudal, a feudal way of life, uh, the kind she had inherited from her parents and grandparents and their parents. That's what we inherited, a feudal way of life, uh, an unsubmissive way of life, a life that says, I'm going to do whatever I want. No one is going to tell me what to do. Uh, and I'll measure my worth by uh, the freedom that I have to do what I want. Right? That's what we inherit. Uh, but but uh, wives have been... Christian wives have been redeemed from that feudal way of life. Uh, that's what Peter said in, in chapter 1 and verse 18. Uh, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways, that word ways, uh, I think uh, the NES has way of life or something like that. Uh, it's the same word for behavior and conduct that's used throughout, throughout all this uh, passage. You were ransomed from the feudal behavior, feudal conduct inherited from your forefathers. Um, so since God is holy and, and uh, since you were redeemed to be holy, then he says in chapter 2, verse 12, keep your conduct, your behavior among the Gentiles honorable so that when they, see, uh, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And that's exactly what we see here in chapter 3, verse 1. He's explaining what it means to keep your behavior beautiful, right, honorable, uh, because God uses that. Uh, he'll use it in the case of, of people when they speak against you as evildoers. They see your good deeds and they glorify God. They see God's glory reflected in you, and God uses that to draw them to Himself. And He's saying, wives, this is how it works in marriage. When you submit to your husband that way, with fear of God, uh, then you have beautiful conduct that will be used by the Lord in His life. Uh, so holy behavior, a wife's submission to her husband, communicates a powerful message about God. It communicates that God is significant. Right? He's the king. He is a sturdy hope. She can do this. It's okay. Uh, because she knows the Lord, and the Lord will take care of her. And that's what Peter has in mind. So he then describes this conduct in uh, verse 2. He says, when they see a respectful and pure conduct, uh, that word pure means holy. Uh, it's not the typical word for holy uh, that we find throughout the New Testament, but it's, it is a common one. Um, respectful is that word for fear. Uh, the ESV and the NAS render it as an adjective that is parallel to pure. So two adjectives describing conduct. It's respectful conduct and pure conduct. Uh, but it's not actually, uh, those two are not, parallel words, as Peter uh, puts it. Literally, Peter says, wives' behavior 
is to be pure in fear. Is to be pure in fear. Uh, the LSB is another occasion where I think the LSB gets it right and the others don't. And uh, I'm keeping a tally of these things, not really. But the number is growing, um, where I do think the LSB does really quite well. It's verse 2, and the LSB says, as they observe your pure conduct with fear. Uh, it's the only translation that doesn't put those together as parallel adjectives, because they're not parallel adjectives. So Peter emphasizes once again that submission must have the proper motivation. Wives are to submit to their husbands because they fear God. The conduct is pure because it's born out of a fear of God. What kind of fear? That's what he talked about in chapter 1, verse 17. If you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear during the time of your exile. What kind of fear is that? It's not a cowering fear. Uh, it's, it's fear of bringing displeasure to your heavenly Father because you love Him and He loves you and you really want to bring Him pleasure. And so you're fearful of, of displeasing Him. He's not indifferent. It's not like He sets aside his, his holiness and His judgment and now you can do whatever He wants because He just loves you. No, He's, he's holy and just and so he, he sifts through all of your attitudes and all of your... Uh, all of your conduct. And he has an opinion about, about all of those things. And you bring him pleasure or displeasure by how you respond. And because he loves you and you love him, uh, you, you live in fear of displeasing him. So, uh, you know, really to have this fear, you, you have to enjoy your father's love for you. Uh, and when you, when you enjoy his love, then his holiness and his justice and his judgments, they become beautiful to you. Uh, apart from His love and reconciliation with Him, His holiness uh, makes us only fearful in the sense we want to get away and uh, we can't draw near. Um, it's scary to us. But uh, while we still have this fear, this, this, we, that we tremble uh, when we understand His love, we're attracted to it. It's beautiful to us. This is, this is everything to us. We love His holiness and that makes us want to uh, emulate uh, His holiness in our own lives. Uh, so Peter's giving them a strategy to win their husbands without a word. Um, submit to your husband, he says, with God-fearing and God-glorifying, God-magnifying uh, behavior. Unbelieving husbands may be alienated by wives who constantly beg them to become Christians. And so, Peter says, here's, here's the procedure. It's to live a faithful Christian life. Uh, and as they see the transformation of their wives, they're more likely to be inclined to adopt the faith of their wives. Um, before we move on to the second aim, let me pause to make some applications to non-wives. What do non-wives take from this text? Um, well, any married men should read this text and go, man, I better be easy to submit to. And, uh, and they should also say, I'm, I'm looking forward to next week when we get to verse 7. <laughs> men or young men desiring marriage, um, they, should, 
and they're looking for a spouse, they should look for one who is submissive because she fears God. Uh, how, do, how does she submit to her present authorities? How does she talk about her parents? What, what, what about the government? What's her perspective? And uh, she's, you're looking for one that doesn't just uh, submit to an authority out of self-interest just to avoid trouble, but one who does that consistently because she fears God. That's the motivation. Um, that's, that's beauty. That's beauty. That ought to be attractive. Um, unmarried women desiring marriage, they should consider whether or not they fear the Lord and, and seek to learn that God-pleasing art of submission to authority. Um, and the way to really embrace it is not by gritting your teeth and saying, I'm just going to do it. It's by having a fear of God asking for that, pursuing that. And uh, we've spent a long time talking about how to do that in the past, so I won't repeat it all here. I got like 20 minutes. All right, number two. Uh, let's look at the second aim of a wife who desires to display the glory of, of, of God's grace. Do I have glory of the God's grace in the notes? Or is that just in my notes? You don't see it the, on the main idea? Well, no, I got that, but the main idea. Oh, Peter describes three main, three aims of life. He desires to display the glory of God's grace. Oh, I got it right there. Okay, good. I don't like you seeing my mistakes. Instead, I like drawing attention to them. Oh, brother. Yeah, this one's kind of loose. It is loose. Can't believe you distracted me now with that. Okay, aim at this. Uh, number two, catch God's eye with the way you dress your heart with imperishable clothes. Here's the aim of a wife who wants to display the glory of God's grace. Catch God's eye with the way you dress your heart with imperishable clothes. Verses three and four. Let's look at this. Amazing. Do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. So it's a twofold command, right? First is negative. Second one is positive. Don't let your adorning be external. And then verse 4, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart, internal, right? And these commands, both of them are rooted in God. What makes a woman beautiful? He's asking, what makes a woman beautiful in the eyes of God? What catches God's eye? You know, we think of beauty that catches someone's eye, right? What catches God's eye? <laughs> we need to think about that. Uh, and that's where Peter goes. True beauty consists of internal character in the eyes of God. It's not the braided hair, gold jewelry, or stylish clothes. Those things are perishable. And the key to standing firm in grace, displaying the glory of God's grace, is to see that perishable things are just that. They are perishable. Uh, God doesn't count them as precious and valuable. In His sight, they are like juicy fruit. They're good. They're fine. But only for a little bit. And then there's no flavor. That's what uh, I used when I was teaching through Ecclesiastes. Juicy fruit. You've heard it. You knew where I was going with that. 
You like juicy fruit? No, I don't. You want juicy fruit? Because it doesn't last. <laughs> yes. And that's exactly what he's talking about with being perishable, right? It's not like there's nothing to it. In some sense, yeah, there is beauty there, but it's perishable. Don't, don't fixate on that. Don't pursue that with everything within you. Identify that which is imperishable and cling to that and pursue that. Rejoice in that. Delight in that. Cultivate that. We need to prize and cherish the grace of God in our lives. He's talked about this in so many ways in this book. Chapter 1, uh, verse 4, he talks about the inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Value that. He's trying to help these people who are in, tri- in trials. Value that, not everything else that is slipping through your fingers. The inheritance isn't. It is kept for you, and you are kept for it. Then uh, chapter 1, verse 6, he talks about your faith. Uh, chapter, six, chapter 1, verse uh, 7, your faith, he says, is more precious than gold that perishes. Your faith. Uh, rejoice that you have that faith. Uh, chapter 1, verse uh, 18, he says, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things uh, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. So rejoice in this, value this, the blood of Christ which has redeemed you. And then, chapter 1, verse 23, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding Word of God. You have the Word of God in you, and it keeps going. It keeps producing life. It sustains you. So value that. Count as precious, the imperishable Word. So one of Peter's goals as he writes this letter is to help us let go of Everything that is tied to this world, you are sojourners and exiles. You belong somewhere else. Hold on to everything there. And and it's not like, in a sense, everything is there. Uh, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's, There's undeserved favor at the revelation, but that's coming to you right now. It's being brought to you even right now. So look for the grace in the future, the inheritance, all this. But it but you're receiving it right now too, deposits of it over and over again and value that. And now he's saying, as you live your life, wives, submitting to your husbands, this is undeserved favor. You're enjoying redemption from a fuel way of life. You're really enjoying the Lord. Your faith is growing. It's being refined. Value all these things. Not everything that everyone around you is valuing. They don't have the right sense of values. That's our problem, though, isn't it? We value and count as precious the perishable. When does God see us precious and valuable? This is something that Peter's thinking about quite a bit from God's perspective. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Everyone else is missing the boat. What does God think about his son? Chapter 2, verse 7. So the honor is for you who believe. Uh, chapter, uh, same verse in the NAS says, this precious value then is for you who believe, referring to the same, referring to Christ. Chapter 2, verse 20, uh, he says, what, what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God, or more literally, this is grace in the sight of God. So he has you thinking again about what God thinks about this. Um, so we've got to make sure we, we align our values with His. Um, and then, what else does God see as precious? Our text, chapter 3, verse 4, 
Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. We fall in love with the things that are temporary and cheap and fading and disappointing. Peter says, don't do that. Appreciate God's undeserved favor and what His heavenly grace can produce in your life and display it. Now, some have looked at this uh, verse here and understood this to mean that jewelry and braids and dresses are sinful. What's that? That's not what it says. No. Yeah, that's not what he's saying. We know it for a couple of reasons. First, he's contrasting the inside with the outside. Uh, he's not contrasting external A with external B, right? Dresses and something else, uh, pants, <laughs> right? He's contrasting the inside with the outside. Second, he's giving three examples, right? Putting on dresses is one of them. And it's the word for clothes, as like ESV says. Don't let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. Uh, and so if you just take it literally, clothing you wear, if he's forbidding all those things, then he's forbidding clothing. And I can't see Peter doing that. Uh, his point is that they should not look to these things as their true beauty. You can, you can braid your hair. Some of you have braids? I tried to this morning. Yeah, yeah. I hear you, brother. Yeah. So don't look for these to these things as true beauty. Uh, and our culture does this all the time, right? We we uh, sometimes Christians are very careful about media intake, and they're careful to protect their children from bad language, from sexual immorality on on the TV. But sometimes what they forget are is all the values. Those, all those things aim to teach values. Every show we watch is teaching us to value perishable. But in God's sight, it's all worthless. And it's the imperishable that matters. Uh, and so what does that mean? No media? Well, I mean, everywhere you go, you go to Home Depot and it's all perishable. Uh, and he's not saying don't have anything to do with it. But we have to talk about these things. We disciple our children. We, we pay attention ourselves. What do I value? What do I love? Right? And we, we need to value what's imperishable. So uh, maybe, maybe there's a point to be made about watching too much TV. Maybe. Uh, but it, it's not just through TV, right? Sometimes it's just other people and what they're talking about. So we just have to guard our heart. Um, so the hidden person of the heart that's what God looks at and what does that consist of here that he values so much a gentle and quiet spirit those are the garments that you should wear Um, so he is here now when he refers to uh, uh, the gentle and quiet spirit it's really another way of saying what he said in chapter 2 verse 11 beloved ones who are beloved by Father, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So what does that look like for the wife who's submissive? She's embracing, she's saying, no, she's abstaining from the passions of her flesh, and she's embracing a gentle and quiet spirit. That's what she ought to pursue. The word gentle is used to speak of tame animals. Uh, It's used to speak of soothing medicine. 
a gentle word, a gentle breeze. So it's a woman that's not quick to insist uh, and argue and defend and push and, and insist on her own rights and assert herself selfishly. That's a humble and gentle attitude that expresses itself in, in a patient submissiveness. The word quiet doesn't mean she never talks, I don't think. Uh, he's, he's talking about a woman's submission. It's, she's, she's still and tranquil and trusting. She's got a quiet disposition. She doesn't have a noisy and boisterous attitude. One, one writer said, and I like this, he said, a spirit which calmly bears the disturbances created by others and which itself does not create disturbances. And why is that? Because she sees things uh, in perspective, in relationship to who God is and to the gospel. And so she's not uh, agitated and fearful and having to defend herself and pursuing things because she needs to have them. No, there's a quietness there because she trusts the Lord, because she knows that God takes care of her. And uh, so that enables her to, have, to be quiet in her spirit. The anthem of the biblical woman is not, I am woman, hear me roar. So I read that, that, that those lyrics last week. Um, so what kind of beauty is important to you, women, especially? Um, easy to give the right answer. Which kind of beauty do you spend the most time and energy cultivating and pursuing? What do you make the most sacrifices for in order to have? Which beauty? Well, that's a question for all of us, I guess, right? Men and young, young men, married or unmarried, what catches your eye? Do you count as precious and valuable what God does? Uh, here's another question. Do you make it hard for women to value what God does? Uh, sometimes we can, men can talk. Well, when we talk, we show what we value, and we, we, we uh, cultivate our values in others, right? We can do this with donuts. Oh, look at that donut. Oh, this is so good. We're trying to cultivate it in others. I'm not saying anything about donuts. It's just a random example. I just saw the donut, okay? <laughs> but we can do that when it comes to beauty for women and for young women. What do we exalt in their eyes? When we're, when we're trying to train up young women, what do we exalt in their eyes? How, how do we help them? How are we helping to shape what they value? Um... And the exhortation to young women uh, that are unmarried, like my daughter Ruby, Claire, she's over there. Give me something to write down, Dad. Uh, don't try to win men to yourself, Ruby, Claire. Okay. <laughs> Just, you know what, Ruby, Claire, do what you are already doing. Display the glory of God's grace. And you will find a man who is already won over to God. That's what you'll find. Glad you're here, Ruby. Ruby Claire. I'm glad too. <laughs> so catch God's eye with the way you dress your heart with imperishable clothes. And then number three, aim at this, wives. Let your hope in God drive out your fear. Let your hope in God drive out your fear. Verses 5 and 6 says, For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. 
and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. So he begins, verse 5, with the word for. He's supporting what he's just said. So he had already said, focus on the inner beauty before God. For this is how holy women in general, and Sarah in particular, lived in times past. And if you follow Sarah's example, then you have become her children. That's his line of reasoning. So he holds up Sarah as an example for women today to follow. You should follow her adornment and her submission. Um, she obeyed in general and called him Lord. Um, now, then, Peter goes to further lengths to root his exhortations in God. Uh, and he would certainly need to do this because a woman's convictions about God would be the only thing that would enable her to submit as God calls her to. And so that's where he goes to talk about how she views God and how she relates to God. Um, and we'll come back to that in a second. But why Sarah? Why is he talking about Sarah here? He says, you are her children uh, if you follow her pattern. It's not that you will become her children if you follow her pattern, but that you already have become her children if you follow her pattern. What does that mean? I think he's saying you are part of God's covenant people. Uh, you are a child of Abraham and a child of Sarah. You're giving evidence. If you act this way, if you embrace God's commands and embrace the role that God's given you in humility, uh, then you are giving evidence that you are truly a believer, truly one of His covenant people. Um, what does it take to follow her pattern? Well, you do good, right? It says in verse 6. You don't fear anything that's frightening, verse 6. You submit to your husband, and you're a holy woman. That is, you're separated from the world, from sin, unto God. You're not separated just unto your husband, but ultimately separated unto God. That's holy. And how do you do those things? You hope in God. You're confident in Him. You're confident that He's totally for you. The way Peter put it in chapter 1, verse 13, is that your hope is in His undeserved favor, the grace that is being brought to you right now and all the way up until the revelation of Jesus Christ. So when you hope in God, it produces uh, holiness, you're expecting great things from God. He'll take care of you. So you don't need sin. You, don't, you see through all the lies of the, of the flesh. Uh, our, our, our lusts try to deceive us. You really need this in order to be happy, right? But with hope in God, you go, no, I don't need that. I've got God, right? And so it, it uh, makes you holy, uh, that hope in God does. Uh, it makes so that you don't fear that which is frightening. Make any threat you want. My view of God is, <laughs> I, I see God, He is all-powerful. He's the sovereign king, so, and He loves me. He's committed to me. And if He didn't spare His own Son, how will He not also, together with Christ, give me all things that I need? So, we don't fear. And we're zealous to do good deeds. We're motivated. He loves me, and so I'm, I'm, I'm not a needy person. I'm freed up to do good things. And I love to do good things because I, He loves me. 
and I instinctively want to please him because I'm amazed that he would love me and give me such favor. All right, so all those things hang together. Um, so hope in God. And this is why the ministry of encouragement is so important. What do we have if we don't have hope in God? And so in our encouragement, may we really hope people not just to feel better about things, but maybe help people to hope in God. Because that's at the root of all of our obedience, all of our faithfulness to Him. Well, um, I'd like to end on time. So I'll just bring up next time, um, I'll make just a a quick comment about Sarah and obedience and that issue of calling Him Lord. Um, I'll, I'll keep that for next time. Um, right now, I can leave it with us focusing on hoping in God and having that drive our obedience and our service to the Lord. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, this text. Thank you that we really are set free from our sin. Um, thank you that we have been redeemed from a, from a feudal way of life that we inherited from our forefathers. We are not enslaved because we've been purchased and set free. And we can live a new kind of life. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd use this text even today to show us how to live out that freedom. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen the wives that are here to uh, be submissive to their husbands for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ and in fear of you. Help them to do it as worship to you. Lord, I pray that you'd help husbands to... uh, to embrace the role that you have given them, to be diligent and humble and faithful and fearful in their leadership. Pray for young women that you would strengthen them to uh, pursue what you have called them to, that they would love your glory and desire to glorify you in their, uh, in their calling as a, a wife one day as they pursue that. And young men, Lord, give them a taste for true beauty. And may they cling to that. Make them uh, godly, humble men, eager to uh, fulfill their calling as uh, leaders in the home. Lord, we thank you for your word and how you shape our thinking. And um, we pray that you would use our lives, even this week, to draw attention to the magnificence of your undeserved favor upon us. And we pray this for your glory. Amen.